0: Welcome to Building Views, the Praxis Circle podcast. I'm Lily Lee. We're pleased to bring you these excerpts which originate from longer recorded interviews you can find at PraxisCircle.com. Become a member by registering at our website and subscribe or follow this podcast. Today's episode is the third of a four-part series in conversation with British author and social critic Oz Guinness. Oz talks with Praxis Circle's Doug Monroe to discuss inspiration for his books and reasons for Christians to live an active faith. Let's listen.
1: This is totally unrelated to any particular book, but how do you come up with these unbelievable lists of of quotes that you put in in the front of some of your books? It's astounding how how you do that. You must have a system. Tell me how. Not really. no, I just have an eye for
2: quotes. I don't have a collection of them. But when I'm reading, when I'm writing any books, I just collect all the particular quotes that are relevant that I come across while I'm writing that book. Now, with uh, *Capediam Redeemed*, which is on time, as you know, I found so many of the quotes were so deep and reflective mm-hmm. that I said to myself. They're worth the price of the book. And many people in that book just read the quotations. And just to read 12 pages or whatever it is of quotations, you have a whole historical reflection on time. For many people, that's better than the book itself, which is fair enough. And I meant it to be like that.
1: No, you have you have a knack for that. And it goes back to the, the other, the beautiful coffee table book you did on Western Civ, where you, you put all these little case studies all the way through and it's, it's just very, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, that's one of the ones I did Invitation didn't to the Classics? Y- yes, Invitation to the Classics. That's, that'll be in print uh, for a long time, I think. Uh, I don't know. Um, so uh, so this question is not about a book, um, but it's about, I remember the Trinity Forum under when Luter was, was head. You were probably there. Um, James Davison Hunter introduced his book to to change the uh, the world, um, and um, Roger Scruton got up, and, and it was a little controversy going on there. Um, what has happened? I, th- I think it sets a little bit of context for your writing. What has happened to that discussion uh, that that Hunter threw out there? Would you say since then? Does that question make sense? I um, know. Fully sure what all your mind behind it, but okay.
2: James Hunter's a good friend of mine, yeah. and of course he's a brilliant scholar. So he went as far as he probably could as a Christian scholar in that book, and he called for what he termed faithful presence. But many of us thought, while well, we understood what he was saying, that doesn't go nearly far enough, because our Lord Himself was not just present. He was active, speaking, healing, delivering, driving the money changers out of the temple and so on. And we need more than presence today. And presence gives people the excuse of just being faithful Christians and keeping their heads down. You know, I meet a lot of people in this country who say to me, well, my model is the early church. They were faithful, shared their faith with their neighbors, but what could they do? And I said, that isn't the model. The early church was under the imperial dictatorship of Rome, whereas the American Republic, based on the Hebrew Republic, the essence of a covenantal system is the reciprocal responsibility of all for all. Love your neighbor as yourself and so on. In other words, every Jew responsible for every Jew. we the people in America, every American should be responsible for the whole of the American system. So no citizen can just keep their heads down. Every citizen should be caring for the whole republic, whether they're Christian or atheist or whatever. So a lot of Christians are faithless in the way they're not engaging assault salt and light today. And the scandal of the American church, and I use that word advisedly, This is the one church in the Western world where Christians are a huge majority. They're not in England, they're not in France, they're not in Germany, here they are. And yet we have, take our friends the Jews, and I mean our friends, 2% of America, but they punch well above their weight, intellectually, financially, culturally, and they always have. Whereas Christians who are a huge majority, and they're called by Jesus to be salt and light, are ineffectual. It's a scandal. And too many Christians lack a Christian worldview in terms of engagement. And that's part of the American
1: problem. So I I wanna, that's at at a nice stage. I didn't phrase that question well, but um, for just giving us your themes and sort of the reception to Renaissance, The Power of Gospel in Dark Times. I felt like that was a beginning of, of what you've written since, called to Evangelism. Um, could you comment on that book and, and the reception?
2: Renaissance is one of my favorite books, but it's not being picked up widely except by the few. Because I think we've got to see that as salt and light, as a creative community, Christians should be culture forming. And when we're not retreating from the world, nor are we surrendering and accommodating to the world, we're in a cultural tension with the world, which makes us a creative minority. And that's the idea of Renaissance. We should be the salt and light today, renewing Western civilization. So that's one of my favorite books, but sadly, not picked up by some of the others. And I wish more people would read that one. It's a more constructive
1: book. Well, you, you've you answered in, in your words something that you may have gotten from one of my questions was, it, I felt was a little confusing. I think he even gave you a page number about that, and that was... Did you want us to be engaged in the public square uh, and how in culture and politics? I know the I know you well enough and read everything. Uh, that the answer is yes, but that was a little confusing in there. And do you know what I'm talking about, or not? I didn't really understand why you're confused. Yeah, yeah. Everything okay. in me is constructive. It engagement. could have been just me, me as a reader. Uh, now, yeah, my own yeah. view
2: is that both as followers of Jesus. We're engaged in the whole of our lives, but also the American Republic requires a citizenship that's engaged. So every Christian who's American, I'm an Amer- admirer of America, but not an American citizen, should be profoundly engaged. There's something worth fighting for here, which you, I don't have home in England, for example. So I... You know, I had a slight uh, disagreement with Rod Dreher. I like what he says about the Benedict Option, but too many people have taken that as an excuse to retreat. And that's wrong. I don't think monkishness and monasteries are anything to do with the gospel. We're called by our Lord to engagement. Now, our Lord has a pattern of engagement and withdrawal. He's speaking, healing, delivering, and then he goes to the other side of the lake or up the mountain as a time of prayer or whatever. But it's that balance of the rhythm of engagement and withdrawal. And so I'm not in favor of the monastic movement at all. And I like the Reformation idea that calling was the equivalent of the monastic movement, but it was engaged with the real world. And that's why calling through such constructive engagement Gave rise to democracy, gave rise to capitalism, and so on. So I'm passionately in favor through calling, assault, and
1: light. We should all be engaged. I'm in 100% agreement with that. And so I, I apologize if I misread part no. of it. Um, there's a reason no, why I may have. um give me excuse for. Yeah, no no, up. no, 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 uh, not at all. Um, so the. Th- th- you kind of taught me the word modernity, um, and uh, you know, for a Southerner, such a big word is kind of hard sometimes. But um, you're not always happy with it. So I tried to state this question in in a positive way. You could state what you're what you're what you don't like about it. But what good do you want to see coming from modernity after postmodernity? Because that's where we're headed, I think. Even postmodernists think their time is well, I don't modernity. agree with that either. But no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you? Well, the word modernity. Moder- what? Yeah.
2: Modernity go ahead. is confusing. You know, at the second Lausanne Congress in Manila, I was asked to speak on mission and modernity, and given. 17 minutes, not very long. And I went out into the foyer and an elderly missionary, a a woman missionary came up to me. I was much younger then. And she said, I have one question. I didn't understand all you said and I didn't uh, agree with all you said, but I have one question. Why do they ask a man to speak on maternity? (laughs) People don't even understand modernity. It's a very simple word. All that our modern world means satellites and cars and television and computers. This is our world of modernity. Now, I think the point, though, for a follower of Jesus, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. So we've got to know the world in which we're in. And our world is the world of modernity. Now, it has enormous benefits, as well as costs. I'm not against it. It has benefit, you take healthcare. Or plumbing, which would us go back to anything before the 18th century and so on. So I'm not against modernity, but we've got to recognize it to resist it where it's dangerous. So the problem with many Christians is they think all the dangers come from ideas. Communism, relativism, secularism, these are ISM ideas, but modernity is far more than ideas. And we need to understand modernity to understand some of the real challenges to our faith. And I use the simple illustration of time. You know, we're living in a world of fast life. Where did it come from? Didn't come from any philosopher. It came from watches and clocks. That's part of modernity, our fast life. So I'm not against modernity. Now, I also quarrel with the word postmodern. Because if you understand modernity institutionally, structurally, all the things I mentioned, we're not going to be postmodern. In other words, postmodern is a word that follows thinking only. You can have postmodernism following modernism, modernism stressing reason, and postmodernism stressing irrationality and relativism. So you can be postmodern in ideas, you can't be postmodernity, short of say a nuclear disaster where the whole thing is blown up and we're reduced to being primitives in caves and so on, then we might be postmodernity,
1: but short of that we can't be. Yes, I hear you saying um, not solely but a, a lot of it is technology, the use of technology, the use of Science, the use of stuff where we're going to have to choose. We can't just always go uh, and do the next thing because it's possible. Uh, you know, that's guaranteed to fail. Um, uh, so I'm going to, move, I'm going to move to the well, next. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah. Or? Okay.
2: Obviously, at the heart of modernity, you have the democratic state, the free market economy, and science and technology. The danger is that in a secular civilization, you start to trust these things. And in World War II, it's very interesting, you had a lot of the Christian thinkers, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Simone Weil, T.S. Eliot, they began to talk about what Simone Weil called the beast, or Tolkien called the machine, or Lewis Mumford later called the mega machine. You think of what Mark Zuckerberg's now referring to as the metaverse. In other words, a totally all-wrapping where you have scientism, technicism, rationalism, progressivism. In other words, all these things relying on these things together, creating our simulated artificial world. That becomes the mega machine, which could be incredibly dangerous. And we believe in human nature. We are most ourselves face-to-face with each other and so on. So to create a metaverse, as Zuckerberg wants to do, will be disastrous for humanity. And then people want to move us into transhumanism. So say with transgenderism today, you have people talk about dysphoria. Someone says, I'm feeling bad as a man in a woman's body, or a woman in a man's body. But when we get to transhumanism, they're saying, I'm feeling bad to have any sort of body and we want a technological replacement of the body. This is the world we're going to. And we bring a great contribution. We believe in humanity, incarnate humanity. Jesus, to reach us human beings, became a human being. And there's nothing higher than humanness face to face. So we've got to
1: think carefully about all these things coming and resist them. We're going to come back to that in the end. Um, I'm going to zero in on one more clarification question, and this crops up in a number of the books. And this is about—I'm going to call it American business practice because because all you have to do is go to Europe, and this this is put in our face how tacky we are, how we have too much advertising, how we we're consumerism—we're always trying to buy the next bling, that kind of thing. Um, so I guess my question is on your attitude toward consumer consumerism, and I think my source of confusion is the only way to fix some of that is to um, legally to make things illegal, and that's that's uh, I'm not one of these things p- people that thinks markets cure everything. Okay, I, I don't think that, uh, but I don't know what your I, I think I hear your critique of of American business practice, consumerism. I'm personally a lot more sensitive to it and worried about it than I was, say, 20 or 30 years ago. But I want to zero in on exactly what you are saying there. Is that a question? Sure. Okay. Now, I said earlier, we've got the liberal state, the free
2: market economy, and science and technology. All these things are gifts but they need to have a framework around them. They answer the what question, the how question. They never answer the why question. It takes faith and ethics as a framework in which to have a liberal state. Without faith and the framework, it will become an authoritarian state. And the same is true of the market. And the same is true of science. Science is incredibly important, but it's not the be-all and end-all of knowledge. Science can't explain freedom. Science can't explain love. We need more than these things. So you mentioned consumerism. The trouble with consumerism, it's great benefits, it gives us incredible choices. Go to a supermarket, I've got a hundred cereals and granolas I can choose from. But that attitude then enters into everything, into relationships, and I'm married to this woman, she's married to me. She might find a better husband, wealthier, more handsome, stronger, whatever. Well, pick and choose comes in, and that comes into theology. You know, we unhitch the Old Testament, who wants to, Leviticus. All those funny laws, throw it out. One man said to me, I put a big dollop of love on my plate, but then he said, hell, hell no. In other words, consumerism's not wrong. But it gives a pick and choose mentality, the church of your preference. The preaching's too long, the preaching's too short, the music's too classical, the music's too contemporary. You've got mega churches, you want a jazz service, a classical service, contemporary service. Pick and choose. Well, then you throw out what you don't like. Now that undermines authority. So there's nothing wrong with consumerism, except when it enters into areas it shouldn't enter into. And that's the problem. So, yes to the market, but within a moral, theological, spiritual framework.
1: Is is the cure then um, f- from uh, like Benjamin Franklin talking to the, the legend of the, the woman coming out and saying, it's a republic if you can keep it. In other words, is it an individual cure where uh, uh, a Christian conscience or whatever conscience that cures it is, is an individual choice versus a, a legislative choice, or is it a combination of that? Not le- How do we cure it? How do we cure it? I would say it's
2: not legislative, but it's not individual alone, it has to be national too. Put it this way, renewal is the very hardest thing for a free society. So yes, one of my books, I call it the golden triangle of freedom, how you sustain freedom and not just win it and order it. You need to sustain it, the golden triangle. But if we look back to the Old Testament where you have it strongly, the main types of renewal are both national. The Jews, Moses says, every seven years, the king must read the covenant and call the people back to it every seven years. Now, the nearest you have in America to that are the inaugural addresses. They're not doing it explicitly, but some of the best of the presidents, you take Ronald Reagan, talking about renewing the American covenant with freedom. He wasn't doing that explicitly, but he probably should have been. You need to have a national renewal But equally, as I said earlier, you need the schools and the families and the places of worship to keep it alive. And for leaders, in the Old Testament, you have the national renewal. Then the king is ordered to write a personal copy of the Torah himself. It would be very good. I mean, people in America swear on the Bible to uphold the Constitution. But many of them, I think, don't know what the Constitution is. And so it'd be important for every American president to read a bit of it every day and realize what it is they're upholding and why they're doing so. So the challenge of renewal is the challenge of a free society. And America's doing badly on almost every front that it takes to renew it. Um, You know, I often say, you take the Beijing Olympics. They were unique in a lot of ways in China. But there was one thing that was unique, there was no American relay runner on the podium. Now, one reason was you had Usain Bolt, lightning bolt, he's rather fast. The real reason was though, the American relay runners dropped the baton. And again and again, you heard the hollow tinny sound of the baton hitting the track. What's happening in America is that from generation to generation, they're dropping the baton. If it's not passed down, say currently to generation C, freedom will die. Both faith and freedom require transmission, and if you stop handing it down, it dies.
1: Well, um, we're the good. The good news is that we got a dun- another kind of woke going on, and it's uh, it starts in places like Loudon County, and it starts when. Certain candidates say that parents have no right to, you know, educate their kids and stuff like that. All right, so Renaissance was um, about um, new evangelism, I would say, of a good kind. And then you wrote a book I love called Fool's Talk. And I think that was okay, I, I, I said we need to be more evangelical, so here's how we do it. And here comes Fool's Talk. And, uh, how, how to persuade others. Um, you've already given me an answer there, so I don't think you necessarily need to repeat it. Could you talk a little bit about um, what Fool's Talk um, is from a Christian standpoint, um, where you're emphasizing, you know, Jesus' example, the Holy Spirit, humor, stuff like that, love? Uh, what what do we do there?
2: One of the simplest approaches to persuasion is the ability to ask questions. Too often Christians make statements, they make proclamations, they preach, and to make a straightforward statement to someone who disagrees is water off a duck's back. But to make people think and to get them to see the problems of what they believe now, which we believe are neither true nor adequate, you have to raise questions. And you can see that our Lord was brilliant at raising questions. Again and again, he's asked tricky questions. What does he do? He asks even trickier questions back, forcing people to see what it is they believe and the holes in what they believe. And we should do that today. So we've got to get out of giving instant Christian statements or conservative statements, and get used to listening to people and raising questions to people to drive them out to see the logic of their crazy ideas and where they lead to. I mean, you take something like the transgender movement. Some day after tomorrow, The despair and the confusion and the loneliness of what we're creating through some of these things is going to be so extreme that people are going to turn around. They're literally defying reality to the point of insanity. And there's a madness in America which will lead to chaos unless people return. But for the moment, we've just got to raise the questions and push them out to see where their ideas are leading to.
1: All right, let's 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 assume we've done that. We've, we've listened, we've raised the questions, we've gotten to know the other person, and the other person wants a response. I would say, I would argue there are three typical responses that are given um, that are ev- evangelical. Um, the first is the academic response, which is, some sort of theodicy or theology that you would offer, you know. Uh, the second would be, um, this is very much the the purview of, of ministers. People have personal problems, they have personal needs, they have difficult things going on in their life where you bring the gospel to that person in, in an effort to help that way, and it's very effective. That's probably the most effective, but we don't want to wish problems on people, so we we prefer every Hindus are fine, you know. But when the, when we can do that, we do it. The third, and this is one you really emphasize in fools' talk, uh, where you you tell people to speak from personal experience, your own personal experience, uh, rather than the Trump brilliant arguments. Do you have any comment on that?
2: I'm a great believer that the Church went wrong when the Christian faith was made official back in the Roman Empire under Theodosius. and The Church made a mistake first of all in, crossing, in copying Roman structures and secondly in copying Greek ideas. Well take the Greek ideas. You can see the importance of Aristotle affecting Aquinas, affecting Christian arguments down the centuries, which gave us the proofs for God, cosmological, ontological, and so on. I don't think they work. You can't prove God, and people can just sit in an armchair and decide whether or not they believe. That is not the biblical way, and I think the Church went wrong in those sort of arguments. If we look in the Bible, the Greeks put a stress on systems systems of reason the bible puts its stress on stories the bible is a single story made up of a thousand stories in all the 66 books there's a lot of talk today about narrative following alistair macintyre but that's biblical the bible's all about stories so we've got to engage with people my story and the people we're talking to, your story, his story, her story, and so on. Now that's not relativistic. So I've mentioned the sexual revolution. That's a big philosophical problem, but it boils down to the person. And with the person, it's a pastoral problem. They've become a gay or a lesbian or whatever it is for specific reasons in their family story. And so I don't just talk philosophically I want to talk pastorally." And so on. So we've always got to have that balance in the personal, the philosophical, the political, the pastoral, all together. So we're really talking to people in terms of truth, but also love and compassion.
1: You know, we're, we're trying to emphasize to the extent we can uh, personal stories of the people we interview.
0: You've been listening to Oz Guinness and Doug Monroe on Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast. Be sure to tune in to our final episode when Oz discusses the effects of the American and French revolutions, modern politics and freedom, and what's in the cards for the U.S. Subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts, and visit us at PraxisCircle.com. I'm May-Lily Lee.